Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, we've done a bunch of episodes, great episodes in my opinion, about how to bring meditation into the workplace. But in this episode, we're going to go quite a bit deeper than issues of focus and productivity and lowered emotional reactivity, which again are all great. But but now we're going to talk about how work, which is where many of us spend most of our lives, frankly, actually gives us an opportunity, if you want to call it an opportunity, to see stuff about ourselves that uh, we may not want to see. Uh, If you do this work, though, of looking at your stuff, and I'm speaking from some level of personal experience here, it can actually make you better at your job and not not for nothing, a better person. My guest is a guy named Jerry Colonna, who is both an executive coach and a practicing Buddhist. He's also had a significant impact on me personally. Regular listeners may remember that I, uh, a few months ago, had something called a 360 review. That's when um, you hire a firm, in this case, Jerry's firm, to interview people who work for you, work with you as your peers, alongside you as your peers, or your bosses. Uh, And in this case, we also interviewed some people in my personal life uh, to get a sense of where I'm at my best and where I'm at my worst. And the 360 was quite quite a surprise to me on many levels in in that it was humbling. Um, And Jerry's firm, Reboot, did the 360 very sensitively. And Jerry personally coached me pre and post the 360 in ways that have been quite transformative and we're still working together in that capacity. So in this episode, we're going to talk about things like what are the demons that that sometimes drive us in our professional life and how do they show up at work? What's our relationship to money? How does our unexamined stuff uh, bleed out throughout the organization in which we work? So pretty heavy stuff and really interesting and useful stuff. That's all coming up. First, though, just a quick pair of business items. Speaking of Jerry Colonna, he and I are going to be doing a live event in New York City on July 10th at the Rubin Museum from 7 o'clock until 8.30. That's July 10th at the Rubin Museum, and there's a link in the show notes. And uh, one quick uh, note about the 10% Happier app. One, One meditation we're featuring this week is from Sharon Salzberg, the eminent Sharon Salzberg. It's called Dressing Up the Inner Critic. It's all about her little technique for managing your inner inner critic so that it doesn't own you. All right, back to Jerry Colonna. Just uh, quickly, his CV, uh, so you have it. He is, as I mentioned, uh, the founder of a company called Reboot.io. He's the founder and CEO of Reboot.io. He's a certified professional coach. Before he got into that line of work, he was a hotshot venture capitalist at places like J.P. Morgan and Flatiron Partners, quite a legendary venture capital career. And now he's kind of legendary, legendary in Silicon Valley, uh, where he's known as the CEO whisperer. He works with all these high-tech uh, hotshots and is known for making them cry and stuff like that. And if you want to know more about his personal story and meditation practice, you can go back to listen to episode 68, which was the first time he was on the show. In this episode, we're going to do a, a deep dive into his new book just out. It's called Reboot, Leadership, and the Art of Growing Up. Here he is, Jerry Colonna. Let me get something out of the way first. This is a book about leadership, but a lot of people, 
I wonder if people in the audience are going to say, well, I'm not a leader. I don't run anything. I'm just a, I'm a worker or I'm right. a parent or whatever. Therefore, this book's not for me. How do you respond to that? I think, well, two things. One is that um, we all have moments of leadership regardless of whether or not we have structural positional power, which is normally the way we uh, approach it. You know, when a, uh, a mother is organizing the family and working with, say, their teenager's broken heart, they're leading. When um, a child is sort of stepping into trying to figure out, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into that recital and I'm, I'm really nervous, that's a leadership moment. Um, and so, yeah, I'm playing with that positional definition of leadership um, and really going at it. But the truth is um, we all have that opportunity for leadership in that way. And then secondarily, I think that because of that core message of the book, which is that the leadership journey, the journey of really challenging ourselves to grow, um, is an opportunity to really confront the things that we have. Um, that we're carrying, the, the unsorted baggage of our childhood. So I think everyone has the capacity to lead and everyone has the opportunity to use those challenges to grow up. Do you think most leadership, I mean, I haven't read, even though I'm nominally in the world of business, I haven't read a lot of you know, how to be a manager books, but do you think most of these books, I'm sure you've read more mm -hmm. than I have, mm -hmm. are telling people about, you know, you get to dive into the deepest abyss of your personal damage and work from there or, or do you uh, think you're on you're an outlier in in management uh, advice um, i think i'm an outlier except that i have good lineage even amongst um the well thought out leaders or the or the well-regarded leadership pundits um, and thinkers in the book i use a phrase uh called the crucible of leadership which is that moment, those moments in our, our, our adulting journey, our, our work journeys, where we are really confronted with a challenging moment. Um, and how we choose to respond to that moment really determines the whole trajectory of our leadership path. Well, that phrase comes from Warren Bennis. And Warren Bennis is considered one of the most uh, thoughtful and intelligent writers on leadership of the 20th century. Um, you know, when, uh, the, the leadership writers I admire would recognize what I'm trying to do. The difference is that I think that um, I am trying to drop the trappings uh, of the language of leadership so that it's more personal, more visceral, and more accessible to people. Um, Peter Drucker, for example, is very accessible once you get past. He's just, just so people yeah. know, he's a well-known management. That's writer. right. Yeah. That's right. But, you know, if you pick up a Peter Drucker book, um, your impulse might be, well, I don't have an MBA, so I can't read this, right? And so the whole idea for me has always been to bridge different worlds, whether it's the Dharma world, whether it's just the, 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 the language of every day and traditional leadership thinking. Now, that said, there's a whole bunch of um, how-to leadership books, which are good but insufficient because they don't really get at the core challenges of leadership. 
they tell you, you know, the best ways to run your weekly sync meetings with your employees. But they don't actually give you any advice on how to grow up yourself and how to grow into your own leadership. But just to be clear, this is a book that you think could be read by people who don't have any employees. Yes. Um, I didn't start out thinking that. Um, but those who have read the book so far, um, I've heard from uh, a wide variety of people who who have been shocked, who who have shocked me with this notion that this book is really relevant for them. I have uh, uh, I encountered this young woman who's twenty one, who read the book over the course of a week as part of our social media campaign. And she came back and she said the book gave her permission to be herself. That's not what I expected. But on the other hand, I did write the book with the intention that um, my three children, Sam, Emma, and Michael, would be able to read this and sort of carry it forward. So I guess it's not that surprising to me. What would you say is the core thesis of the book? That that lead the challenges of leadership and the challenges of work represent – present us with an opportunity to um, confront and work with the parts of ourselves that we'd really rather not. And that if we choose to do so, not only will we become a better leader, but we'll actually grow up. And my general belief is we spend the vast majority of our lifetime uh, in this thing called work. Why not use it to grow up? Why not use it to become a better person rather than seeing it as an opposition or an obstacle to our path to actualization? How do we do that? Well, we look at the challenges that that we're confronted with. Every day you've got somebody who walks in and sort of questions your authority or questions your, your thinking about things, questions your values or questions your integrity. Every single day we're presented with those kinds of challenges. And we can either shut it down, bully our way through things, white-knuckle our way past our fears, our self-doubts, our, our sense of imposter syndrome, or we can lean into those moments and we can say, what is really going on for me? You know, in, in the book, I talk about the notion that uh, a Joseph Campbell quote in which the treasure you seek is in the back of the cave. Are you willing to go way into the back of the cave and retrieve that parts of yourself, those parts of yourself that you'd really rather not think about and then pull them out and see them as the source of your strength rather than necessarily something that you should be ashamed of. Well, I mean, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, but to me that sounds really wise, at least in theory, Thank but you. in practice for the uh, regular person. So I have Jerry Colonna as my coach, so you take me to the back of the cave all the time. Right. And I'm guided there and supported, et cetera, et cetera. But how does the average person go to the back of the cave and emerge as a better worker, leader, whatever you want to call it? Well, you know, the first step is to actually recognize that there is, in fact, a back of the cave or that there is even a cave to begin with. Because so much of us, uh, so much of our life is organized around denying that these things exist and that we have these um, challenges that we're working with. The second is to do what I often think about is uh, what I often refer to as radical self-inquiry. And um, 
you know, with radical self-inquiry is a term I coined to refer to a fundamental Buddhist principle, which is to sit still and look at what's actually going on and to use the practice, say, of meditation, to use the practice and to, to just standing still and looking at your life um, and ask yourself a series of questions. Why am I upset in this moment? What's the threat that I'm feeling? Is it true? Is that threat really true? And that simple act of asking yourself these open questions and being willing to listen to the answer, you don't even have to talk to anybody about it. Um, I think that journaling about it can be really powerful. But if you just sort of sit there and you look at your day and you review your reactions in a situation, I'm in the middle of a meeting. Why am I getting upset? Sure, the person across from me is a jerk, but really? Why, why today? Why is that bothering me? And what can I learn from that? That's a practice that you don't necessarily need a guide. Um, that said, every at the end of every chapter in the book, we added a series of journaling questions, prompts, really. These are the, the questions themselves are less important than the act of actually pausing and asking yourself, what's really going on here? So I think that that answer will land with a lot of the listeners of this podcast the vast majority of whom I suspect either have a meditation mm-hmm. practice or aspire to establish one. Mm-hmm. So just to f- put a fine point on it, you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, you can use your meditation practice as a as a vehicle toward this radical self-inquiry that you're describing and recommending. Right. Uh, you can do journaling, which doesn't cost anything That's beyond right. you know having some paper and a pen. And you know, I, I suspect a lot of people listening to this show avail themselves wisely of um, psychotherapy. Right. And that's another place you can do it. And they may not be management experts, but you can talk to them about what's going on at work as a way to explore the fact that since we spend so much time at work, it's going to trigger lots of stuff from the back of our cave. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll tell you a funny – I think it's a little funny little story from my work in workshops and boot camps. And boot camps is our term for these sort of multi-day experiences that I run. I always stand up and I, you know, I have this reputation for making folks cry. And um, I, I don't think I've actually made you cry yet. So Why is that such a big deal to you, making people cry? It's not. It's not. But it's the thing that people talk about me. And so I actually use it. What is important to me, and this is the point I often make to people, is because I have that reputation, I try to turn it on its head and I say – You know how I actually do that? It's a very, very simple technique. I ask people how they really are. I just ask people to stop, sit still, look inward, and ask themselves how they're feeling. And Dan, it's heartbreaking. But most people, when they pause and they listen to the chatter inside, they start to feel sad. What's going on with that? It's because we're, I think it's because we spend so much time in a kind of fast forward, leaning in, running up the stairs, you know, life at the speed of light, 
that when we actually pause and someone guides us to just say, hey, how are you? No, really, how are you? The minute that happens, all of a sudden, I can see it in your eyes, it's happening to you. The minute that happens, we start to drop away all the nonsense of our day. And then what I often advise, whether it's a client or in a large setting, is what if we spent our days from that place? And you can do it for yourself. And you can do it for yourself. You don't even have to say it out loud. You can sit on the subway and you can say, okay, I'm seating, I'm seated, seated. The train is rushing by. How am I feeling? And rather than, you know, to put it in this in the leadership context, in the business context, rather than rush in to fix the problems, which are relentless and never-ending, we started off by saying, I'm not feeling well right now. And because I'm not feeling well right now, the answer that I'm going to come up with is probably not going to be a good answer and may even be inhumane to the people around me because I'm thrusting myself into a situation. I'm forcing it. By starting off from that place, and this costs nothing, and it's available to everyone. Imagine you sit down with your life partner and you're about to have a meal. And before you launch into a recitation of the day or the lamentations of life, you just said, I'm not feeling well right now. I'm scared. I'm sad. I'm angry. Or I'm joyful. Or I'm happy. Or I'm anxious. And then you connect. So we start some of our meetings at 10% Happier, and I think you do this too. You may have recommended it to us. I did. With red, yellow, green. Can you talk about what that is? Yeah, so it actually comes from uh, um, uh, a uh, psychological theory called polyvagal theory, um, which folks can look up because I don't know enough about it. But it's a simple technique, and, and it's just a way to use colors to identify emotional states. Why do we pick colors? Because sometimes we're socialized not to be able to talk about feelings. And so by using the words red, yellow, or green – and then allowing the space for people to define any color in between. Well, I'm orange trending towards fire engine red to describe my emotional state. You also get people to be able to connect both internally with themselves and with each other without going into the story behind why. Because the big fear when we teach this, the big fear is, oh, my God, we're going to turn a business meeting into a therapy session. No, 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 no. All we're doing is grounding herself. It's kind of, to me, it's very much a mindfulness exercise. It's, I'm going to sit on the cushion and I'm going to pause and I'm going to see how I'm doing. And then I'm going to go to work. So that's what we do with red, yellow, green. Red is, I'm kind of here, but or no, red is, I'm totally in the red. I'm, I'm you know, anxious. I'm not really here. Yellow is I'm sort of in between, things are okay. Green is I'm fully present. I could be green at home and red at work. I could be red at work and yellow at home. And it's just a way for your colleagues to sort of understand where you are as well. I, of course, you will be 0% surprised to hear that I resist some of this stuff because I'm like, you know, I'm 
Gen X raised by a bunch of militant, hierarchical uh, baby boomers here at ABC News back when this was a pretty toxic environment. I've been here for 19 years. It's much less toxic now. Mm. But I come out of that. And so the whole red, yellow, green thing for me, I still approach it with some trepidation because I'm like, oh, my God, is this going to devolve into you know, some kumbaya session? But, uh, you know, the rational part of me uh, sees that it, it has the benefits that you just described. Well, and I totally understand um, your hesitancy and I smiled when you described the old toxic ways. You think that was an accident? Right. In the old toxic ways, it was you leave your life, you leave your reality at the door when you walk into business. And the truth is none of us do that. All the best we can manage is to suppress it. That's the best that we can do. And, and in, the, in the most um, extreme version of that, we suppress it to the point where we're no longer cognizant of it consciously. And then we just act out all over the place. Mm -hmm. And and your point, the point you've made to me individually many, many times is the the more the 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 higher you rise, so to speak, the more you become a leader with people looking to you, the more all of this unexplored pathology That's right. bleeds out and affects and infects everyone. I used to work down the hall from here. There was a guy you may have heard of named Peter Jennings right, right down the hall from here on right. the second floor of our building here at ABC News. Yeah, an incredible human being, uh, an American icon, even though he's actually Canadian, but also incredibly difficult, mm. uh, really difficult. Had some – I don't know it intimate. Uh, I don't know his personal history intimately. I know a little bit about it. Difficult relationship with his family mm. and his, I think specifically his dad. Mm. Um, and that played out here – all the time, and it was everybody was walking on eggshells all the time because you never know. P Peter would walk in red; he wouldn't declare it. You'd be able to tell from his body language, or but he would just start saying incredibly mean things because he was so smart. He could really just cut to the core of whatever your insecurities were, and that was that affected everybody. Uh, so, and then I and then I see it playing out in my own leadership, but with your help of. I'm bringing some of that into into my uh, leadership here at ABC News or at 10%. And so, yeah, this stuff, if you don't look at it, it's not like it goes away. No, it, and in fact, it, it amplifies throughout the organization. I mean, that's, that's, that's the really sad part of it is that when those who have positional and structural power within an organization, whether it's our community, whether it's our politics, whether it's, you know um, – you know, nonprofit organization, when those who have that power – A family. A family, very much a family. When those who have that power don't do their work, don't take responsibility for the unsorted baggage of the, that they're carrying since childhood, they infect and affect everyone throughout the, the power structure. And maybe one of the saddest things that, I, that I've heard in, over the years in my career – was I got a phone call once from the head of talent for a very large company, thousands and thousands of employees. And she called reaching out um, because um, she needed to break through some of the habits, some of the toxic habits in the senior leadership at this company. And the, and the catalyst, um, and this breaks my heart, was that um, health care costs for mental health 
for the children of the employees had gone up 70% in the previous two years. Yeah, just let that sink in. Okay? There's some 15-year-old kid who is depressed to the point of being suicidal indirectly because of the toxicity of that parent's work environment stemming from the fact that it's too soft to pause in a business meeting and say, I'm in the red and what I'm about to say is probably not uh, grounded in a, in a healthy place. That's just bull****. That's really unfair. That kid did not sign up for that job. And I think that we have a moral responsibility to do our work because the people around us pay the price. We just say more about doing our work. And is meditation enough? No, meditation is not enough. But meditation – so let's, let's break down do, what do I mean by doing our work. I mean stop. Stand still. Slow down, check in with yourself, pause. There are a million stories you tell yourself about the lamentations of your day. Are they true? Because if they're not, and you act from that place, you're going to hurt somebody. So slow down, stand still, check it out. Ask yourself a series of questions. Am I leading the organization that I want to work for? One of the challenging questions I often ask people is, if my child were to come to work for my company, (laughs) yeah, that got you. How would I feel? Because if I don't feel pride and happiness, then I'm not leading well. So That's a great question. Meditation becomes the ground upon which you begin this process. And by the way, it doesn't have to be sitting meditation in a lotus position on a cushion. It's that moment of meditation where you just pause and you slow the chatter down and you say, Is this who I want to be? Is this the adult that when I was five and I was laying on the carpet pushing a matchbox car around saying to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to be toxic, hurtful, bullying, suppressed, repressed, angry, anxious? Of course not. How do I get back to that? How do I lead from that place? Responsibly wield my power. And if I do that, I create the space for everyone else around me. You were telling the story about Peter Jennings and how everybody walked on eggshells. I can only imagine what the second and third in commands 
those who were in those command positions, how that just ran down the hill. And they made sure that as soon as you walked into this environment, you knew that you had to walk on eggshells. Now, before we get all ooey-gooey on this, tell me how that's productive. I can make a case for it. I mean, what he, he did, Peter forced us to operate at the highest level. He asked incisive questions. He... We knew we weren't going to get away with anything with him. We It made me sharp and ready and awake. So here's the question. Yeah. I'm not I'm, – Could could that quality of that work have been delivered without your sen- inner sense of worthiness having been challenged every single day? Absolutely. Right? So that's that's the hard work of leadership. How do we lead in such a way that we inspire the best in our people? without using fear to drive them to do extraordinary work. Because occasionally, we're not talking, by the way, about hard work versus soft work or easy work. What we're talking about is having a shared sense of commitment to the actualization of every individual so that the work environment becomes a place that demands the best of us, but allows each of us to grow up, to use the terminology that I use in the book, to allow each of us, our best adult selves, to come forward. Now, might we not squeeze every ounce of profit out of that? Yeah, that's possible. Well, but but I was just my mind was just going to self-interest here. Because whether you're the leader of an organization or a leader of a unit or uh, just a member of a team, which does require being a leader or whatever, in a business context, can't can't you just make the case that no? I think I think science is making the case for us that happy, productive teams do the best work. Yeah, I, I think the 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 I I can't put my fingers on the data right now, but I think the data is out there and irrefutable. Well, I'm. I'm going to do something dangerous because I'm going to try to work from memory here. But I believe Google did right. a study of the best teams. That's and they're right. trying to figure out what 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 what's the common denominator among the best teams. Charles Duhigg wrote a piece of, wrote a, about this in his most recent book. And there was a piece in the New York Times Magazine, if anybody wants to go look it up. It was from a couple of years ago. And what they found was – took them a long time to figure this out. What they found was, if I'm remembering this correctly – the common denominator among the most successful teams within Google, and by the way, we are increasingly working in teams. Right. This is relevant to everybody. That's the way the workplace is trending these days. The common denominator was something called psychological safety, right. meaning it was okay to speak up. Right. You weren't operating in an, op- in an atmosphere of fear. And there was equity. All voices were being heard, et cetera, et cetera. And that can look in a lot of different ways. And that's why it was so hard to figure out what this common denominator was because these teams – can have all sorts of different cultures. Some are really humorous, some are not. But the common denominator was psychological safety, which it seems to me is what when when you're talking, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's right, and and it's psychological safety coupled with the joy of excellent work. Right now, that's an unusual phrasing. We don't often think about the joy of a well crafted piece of work. Right. Those are not in opposite. You know, they're not in opposition. Um, 
this is hard work for a leader because that means they have to model creating psychological safety within themselves. It means that they have to constantly check into a sense of purpose and vision. This is who we are. This is how we are different. This it's it's uh, it creates a sense of connectedness and an esprit de corps um, where really talented people get to do the best work of their lives and then leave feeling energized and feeling that they grew. Imagine if that was our model for leadership. Imagine if after spending four or five years working for a company, we walked away saying, I am a better person for having had that experience, not boy, I survived that experience, (laughs) right? Look at the battle scars I have. Demanding excellence in that environment. Well, if we drop the word demand and we said that all leadership models excellence, then what we're doing is we're creating a, we're, we're, we're creating a, we're living into the wish that we all have to belong to a tribe that feels safe, that that where we feel loved, and that's deep in our uh, evolutionary wiring. You know, in the book, I talk about the fact that all that we're all wired to seek love, safety, and belonging, to feel that we can love and be loved, to feel physically, emotionally, and existentially safe. And in doing so, that we belong. We know where we belong. This is my tribe. This is who, who, no matter what, they will have my back. And if we can create work environments and communities and families that are organized for those three things, when we do, let's put it this way, when we do this, because we do, we create truly extraordinary and sustaining work. Would you say your goal is to remake the workplace? You know, the first time I came on this show, one of the things I said was that I was uninterested in enlightenment per se, that I was really about alleviating suffering. It's the same goal. I want to participate in a movement to make it less painful to go to work. You know, you've heard me say before in coaching conversations, um, that phrase that we've taken from David White, the poet and philosopher, good work done well for the right reasons. I want to encourage people to end their days, put their head on the pillow saying, good work done well for the right reasons. We will sleep well tonight, and tomorrow morning I will get up and I will have the joy of hard work all over again. I think if we do that, then work becomes not the means for suffering and hurting ourselves, but the means for our full actualization and becoming the people that we were born to be. I remember when you first quoted that we were in a coaching session, which for the uninitiated means you and I were talking. Uh, and within the, under the rubric of you being a coach and me being your client. And you use that quote with me. And I remember saying, 
I'm not sure I've ever put my head on the pillow and felt that. I I, I definitely th- think there have been times when I've done good work. I have some questions about whether it was done well in the fe- in the sense of did I not hurt myself or anybody in that process? And then it gets really dicey when you get to the right reasons and sussing out what exactly are my motivations here and is can I say with confidence that there wasn't a ton of ego in in my reasons? No. Or can you say with confidence that there wasn't a ton of fear in your reasons? No. Right. Um, What drives us to work? Right. Um, I don't think we ever fully remove um, those uh, childhood survival structures that we carry forward. If I don't have enough, um, if I don't work hard enough, then I won't be worthy enough. I don't think we entirely remove those. But if we can bring forth our adult sensibility to examine those, we can lessen that as a driver and therefore lessen the toxic effect of that old childhood structure so that when we have power, we're no longer asking those around us to make us feel loved, safe, and that we belong. More 10% Happier after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. I was thinking recently as you were talking and I've been thinking about it recently in the context of our coaching relationship about the Hotel Regina in Paris, France. My parents, when I was 10 maybe, mm-hmm. took us for a couple week vacation in Europe and because they didn't have a ton of money. They were they were doctors. A lot of people think when you, you know, doctors make a ton of money, but they don't, especially not in the context of academic medicine, which my parents were both in, meaning they worked at Harvard uh, and they treated patients or worked on the or patient care teams, but they also did a lot of academic research. That's very prestigious, but not very well paid as opposed to being in private practice as a physician who's just billing uh, the insurance company or their patients directly. And they they took us on this trip in part because I think one or both of them was speaking at academic conferences in Europe, and that sort of underwrote the mm-hmm. expenses. And at one point, we're in Paris, and the I believe one of the organizers of this of a conference that my one of one or both of my parents were speaking at put us in a hotel called the Hotel Regina, and I remember walking in there and thinking, 
this place is nice. Mm. And this is how I want to live, as opposed to my parents mm. who raised me in Newton, Massachusetts, and my mother's a Flinty uh, Yankee, and my dad's a Jewish guy from New Jersey, both very careful with money. We didn't often keep the heat on in the winter, and so we had to wear vests around the house. And mm. a lot of my friends lived in these big, fancy houses, and we lived in what was, by comparison, not that nice of a house, and my parents didn't drive super nice cars. And I walked into the hotel, Regina, and I was like, no, 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 this is living. This is how it's going to be done. Right. And I was thinking about your exhortation for all of us to think about what's our relationship to money? Why do we work? And that kept coming up for me. Well, and I, I love that image. And as your coach, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold on to that because Hotel Regina is a powerful symbol. I mean, it, you know, I'm going to project into that. You tell me if this has any relevance for you, but you were aware as a boy before Paris that you didn't have as much money as others. Yes. And when you stepped into the Hotel Regina for a brief moment in time, the shame of not having as much was lifted. And so money became the means to creating Hotel Regina for you as much as you can, which meant leaving behind the shame of not having as much money. Does that have any resonance? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's 100% accurate. And so if we look at your relationship in your, say, contract negotiations, you might get a little more edgy when someone says to you, well, we're not going to pay you that. Because very, very quickly, your effort to leave behind the shame of Newton Mass is threatened. Yes, 100%. And then that happens for most of my life happened outside of conscious awareness. That's right. And so then it just made everything worse. That's right. Still happens much of the time outside of conscious awareness, maybe 10% more aware of it and therefore 10% less driven blindly by it. But it's still there, of course. Yeah. I'll tell you a story about my lemon drops. Yes, I was going to get book. you to tell that story. So go for it. So um, I grew up with enormous shame around money. Um, uh, six siblings. Um, parents who struggled with alcoholism and mental illness and um, a deep dependency upon my mother's father, my grandfather, Dominic Guido, who remains to this day the image of what an entrepreneur should be. Was he an ice dealer? He was an ice man in Brooklyn, as most uh, Italian immigrants from Bari were. And um, he uh, he had only a sixth grade education, but nevertheless, he still managed to create a business where, as I often say, there was more money at the end of the day than there was at the beginning, <laughs> which is the basis of all business, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, he would, he would distribute ice and coal throughout the, with, throughout Brooklyn and the joke in the family was an illegal homemade wine all year long, right? On his route. And the thing about, Dominic Guido, you know, in the chaos of my childhood, which was extraordinary, we would, my, especially my brother John and I. Can I just interrupt? Because yeah. you had chaos in your childhood. Not, I mean, your, your mother had mental illness and your father was an alcoholic. I'm Correct. Say, I just want to add some 
yeah. color here. And in fact, my mother had uh, what's called um, uh, schizoid affective disorder, bipolar, um, which included her having lots of delusions and um, talking to people who weren't in the room. Um, it was a really painful and challenging experience. And you watched her carted away to the hospital on many occasions. On many occasions. Uh, um, she spent um, most of the 1960s in and out of mental institutions and hospitals. Um, uh, the, the phrase 47 shock treatments rings in my consciousness all the time. 47 electroshock therapy treatments um, to break the grip of the depression that she had. And this is back when the medications that they used were just like shotguns to the brain rather than the much more skillful medications that they have now to deal with things. And so we grew up um, with a constant sense of tension uh, my father's depression, which was really man, uh, manifested around his uh, his alcoholism, his relationship to my mother. There was always this sort of seething. And relationship tension. to your grandfather because there was resentment there about your grandfather there was, subsidizing. There, that's right. My, my grandfather would um, – we lived in an apartment that my grandfather owned and we were the supers in effect of the building. And cleaning the hallways, taking care of the building. Um, and there was always this consciousness that we um, were dependent upon grandpa. Um, I remember my father bristling if my grandfather showed up with food. And food was an issue. Food safety is a, is a core issue. Uh, uh, it's a core threat for human beings. Um, as I talked about before, the sense of love, safety, and belonging, um, all of it was challenged. Um, thank God I had six amazing siblings. And I love my parents, but thank God I had six amazing siblings because we were kind of like a, uh, a feral group of cats who just took care of each other. Um, anyway, Grandpa always seemed to have enough. Um, there was always enough food. There was always enough. I remember the smells of fresh picked figs from the tree that grew in the backyard or the ground coffee that was always there. And one of the things that I really connected to was that they had this green doored pantry in the hall of their house on Beverly Road in Brooklyn, just off of Nostrand Avenue. And there was always a canister of lemon drops in there. And like the Hotel Regina, lemon drops became a symbol. And so years later, when I struggled in my 30s and I had my breakdown in my 30s, um, it can, was, I just, can I just explain yeah, that? So you were yeah. in your 30s after a, if people haven't listened to your prior podcast, you were in your 30s after in the midst of a very successful career as a venture capitalist here in New York City, and yet found yourself not long after 9-11 feeling suicidal. That's right. And, and I, again, I tell that story um, with more detail in the book, but uh, finding myself at ground zero, um, wanting to leap in front of a subway. And 
this was no idle threat. Um, I had had a suicide attempt when I was 18. And so um, uh, my dance with depression was lifelong. Um, and so in the midst of all of the external wealth, external approbation, I was hurting deeply again in my late 30s. And it was at that point that I really began to unpack my relationship to money, which sounds surprising when I say it out loud again, because, huh, money, why? It's because I was driving myself to uh, answer the question of, do I have enough lemon drops? And with that mindset and with that attitude, no amount of lemon drops in the world would be enough. Yeah, at one point, your shrink asked you what would be enough. At one point, Dr. Sayers, my shrink, said, when is it going to be enough? How much do you need? And I found myself saying, Bill Gates. And I, and I was shocked. I needed to have what I refer to as Gatesian-like wealth in order to feel safe. And, you know, there are seminal moments in our lives where you, where you begin to see with clarity the structures of your childhood as they're driving your decisions in the present. And that was one of those moments where I said, that is not who I am. That is not the man I want to be. That is not the father I want to be. That is not the adult that I want to model myself after, and it's not the, the model I want to be for my children. Someone who is so afraid to not have enough as to risk his personal well-being and drive himself to the point of suicide. And that was the feeling. I had to drive myself to the point in order to feel safe. And the irony is, the more I drove myself, the less safe I was. And that's an example of what I would call an adult, a kind of wake-up call into adulthood. I no longer um, am as driven by those fears. I still occasionally worry about, do I have enough? Will I be safe? Um, and external exogenous events happen to me all the time to trigger those fears. But I have now the resiliency to return to an equanimity, to be able to come back and say, okay, the story I'm telling myself is I don't have enough lemon drops. So maybe there are some things I can do, or maybe I actually have enough, just as I am. And so this is, you You post throughout the book, post, look, I'm talking like the internet here, you <laughs> pose throughout the book a series of provocative questions that you're hoping to get people to journal on, and mm -hmm. relationship to money is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, you are now intuiting what my desire is, because you've just picked up your phone to look. Um, and go ahead, keep looking, I'll filibuster. Mm -hmm. uh, I, before we started rolling, asked Jerry to pull up a copy of the book, because there are a bunch of other questions that I think are really useful for people to to take as journaling prompts, or even just you know prompts for your own internal exploration as you're walking around. Uh, that will get you toward the back of the cave so that you can be a better functioning grown-up. Um, do you want to 
Sure. Think of uh, pose some of these other questions. Sure. And and you know what I would suggest is um, see I think of my meditation sessions as inclusive of both sitting meditation and my journaling, and I journal every day. And um, you know my mornings don't really begin until I've done both of those things, mm. and it may take me an hour and a half, two hours to just quietly go through all of that. And so for your listeners, many of whom have a practice or are thinking about a practice. A lot of these people might say to themselves, I don't have an hour and a half to do all that. Right. And um, so my sitting practice is only 15, 20 minutes. Um, My journaling practice could be as little as 15 minutes or it could be as long as an hour and a half. It sort of depends on what's happening. But what I was – the reason I was making the connection is that I think whether it's just prior to sitting practice or just after sitting practice, it might be kind of interesting to then sit with pen and paper. And I really recommend pen and paper because of the visceral, physical nature of it. Um, because the we're not writing and journaling for someone else to read. It's not note-taking. It's not performative. It's the process of actually looking inward. I, of course, you know, because I'm always trying to monetize my own inner experiences. I'm thinking, well, I could journal and then. And then turn it into a book. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the point. That's right. So here are some questions for folks to consider. How did my relationship to money first get formed? How did that relationship shape the work I've chosen? And my definitions of success and failure. How does it shape my view of the quality of others' work and contributions? What was the belief system around money and work that I grew up with? And how does that impact my own view of my own worthiness? I think that if you can ask yourself questions like these and then Sit with the answers that arise. Understand that the answers will probably morph and change as your mind goes down the rabbit hole of your past or goes into the back of the cave and kind of retrieves memories. Like, you know, we just started talking and you brought up the memory of the Hotel Regina. Now, that that's a piece that was in the back of the cave. It wasn't so far back that you couldn't access it. But it was in the back of the cave. And then you bring it forth. And you sit down and you say, well, how does that, how old were you in that moment? I think 10. Right. So imagine, how was 10-year-old Dan's reaction to the lobby of that hotel? How did does that show up as you try to navigate all the different pressures that you work with today, you and Bianca work with today. And we sort of give a nod to that. And then we carry forward. That's a a really helpful piece to carry. And for me, meditation becomes the ground upon which we do that work. Before we wrap up, 
Mm-hmm. Can we can can you go back to your phone there for a second and mm-hmm. pull up just randomly some another provocative question uh, about anything just as another example of the type of stuff you get us to do uh, in your quest for sure. radical self-inquiry? Who is the person I've been all my life? What can that person teach me about becoming the leader I want to be? What was the story my family told about being real? being vulnerable, being true. What do I believe about vulnerability and how might that actually serve me? And then let me give the, some of the concluding questions. How would our organizations respond were we to hear all the things that are being said? What does it mean to be a leader at our organization? What does it mean to be a grown, fully actualized adult? How would we feel if our children were to work for the company we've created or the team we lead? How has the unsorted baggage of what has happened to us shaped who we are as leaders? What do we believe to be true about the world? Is it a dog-eat-dog world? Or is it a world where people can be mutual in support for each other. And I guess the final questions I often ask are, what kind of leader do I want to be? What kind of adult do do I want to be? Because that's our opportunity to look at who we are and to consciously move into creating that. And I think that's, in the end, the, the, the most radical act of adulting is to choose who we want to be. And when we fail to live up to that aspiration, we blow ourselves a kiss, we dust ourselves off, and we pick ourselves up, and we try again the next day. And it's key to know you will fail all the time. All the time. And that, so there's a question. How do we respond when we ourselves fail ourselves? Do we use that to beat ourselves up? Or do we use that to grow? In a similar way, how do we respond when people disappoint us? John O'Donoghue, the poet, uh, the late John O'Donoghue says, may when those who fail or disappoint you, may your response be their stairway to renewal. I mean, that's our opportunity. That's the adult I want to be. By the way, because you know, I'm always thinking about the pleasure centers of the brain, it's in your interest as a leader to be building that stairwell for people who fail you. You're just going to have better – it's obvious. You're going to have a better functioning team. And it's in your interest to be that kind of adult. Yeah. To go home and when your spouse hurts you because they're carrying their stories about the world or when your child – disappoint you or when you disappoint them or when you hurt them to allow that renewal to come forward. If this is deeper than forgiveness, this is empathetically stepping into the fact that we all disappoint and hurt each other. And in recognizing that we get to grow up 
you know, in the end, that's the message that, you know, Dr. Sayers, my former therapist, she passed just about a year ago at 93. I worked with her for almost 30 years. Um, that was probably the greatest gift that she ever gave me was the ability to accept myself totally down to my bones. What she used to say to you all the time, you're, you're incorrigible. You're incorrigible. And she used to say it at first and I used to feel really, really resentful about it. But then eventually I heard her love and acceptance in all of that. And then it was okay. It's okay that you fail. Yeah, I mean, if I, I hope I'm not veering away from accuracy here, but uh, I think there's a concept in psychotherapeutic traditions of un, what's called unconditional positive regard. Yes. So a great therapist, well, every therapist should do this, but a great therapist really embodies that idea of unconditional positive regard vis-a-vis their patients or clients. And, and so calling you incorrigible within that context is basically you just giving you permission to be a to to fail and and dust yourself off and to be worthy nonetheless yeah yes yes and yeah. to be lovable nonetheless mm-hmm. and so unconditional positive regard sounds still complicated but what we're really talking about is unconditional love mm-hmm. yeah that's just a it's a way to make it sound a little bit more clinical that's right and <laughs> and and but taking it out of the clinical what if we could Love the people who disappoint us even when we have to terminate or fire them. What if we could love the person even when we have to end a relationship? What if we could love that entirety even when it doesn't work out? What if we can love ourselves down to our bones despite our being incorrigible? Comedian Tracy, Tracy Morgan or Tracy Jordan? I can't remember. Cause he Tracy goes, Morgan. Morgan. He, he goes by Tracy Jordan on 30 Rock, but in his real life, it's Tracy Morgan. <laughs> he once said, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> great quote. Um, well, I love you and you've done a great job on this interview. Uh, I think the book is going to help a lot of people. Uh, you individually have helped a lot of people, including the person uh, yammering into this microphone right now. As we Close well, out look, no, well, before you close yeah, out, sure. I want to say I love you too. Oh, thank you. And one of the things that I've enjoyed the most over the last few years is actually getting to know the whole of you. And the more I know the whole of you, the more I love you. You know, you're no longer just this guy behind the mic with the really deep voice. <laughs> you're this, you're this really wonderful human. And, uh, I just, I'm really proud that you're in my life. I appreciate that. Yeah. And now I have to do this awkward transition of asking you to to do something super crass, which is, can you just plug the hell out of your book? (laughs) It's really uncomfortable. Sure. The book is called Reboot, Leadership in the Art of Growing Up, published by HarperCollins. Thank you, Harper. Harper Business. Uh, And it's coming out June 18th. And or it was released on June 18th, and uh, I'm super excited about it. It's, um, you know, as I write in the book, um, for a boy who suffered a sense of not being heard to finally have his words being read, 
um, is exciting and terrifying. And uh, my deep wish is that somewhere down the line, five years from now, someone comes across some tattered paperback edition that's all marked up and says, this book is really making a difference in my life. So that's the best I can do for Craftsmas. There you go. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Again, big thanks to Jerry Colonna. As as I said, he's had a big impact on me, so I really appreciate him coming on the show. And if you want to see us together live, that's uh, coming up July 10th at the Rubin Museum right here in New York City. Time now for your voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. I have a question regarding the recent podcast with Daniel Ingram. He talks about two kinds of practices, emotional work and insight practices. And he says both are important but should be done separately. And I feel like I understand what is meant by insight practices, but I don't know what is meant by emotional work. So I was wondering if you could maybe clarify specific techniques for one or for both, particularly the emotional work. And he also cautioned against spiritual bypassing, and I'd be interested to know more about that because I wonder if by just doing the insight practices, I am also doing spiritual bypassing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, love your work. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Okay, so those are great questions. I'm really at, glad you asked them because these are important things to be able to disambiguate. Inside practices are, as I think you said, you know this, but I'll just say it for anybody who isn't clear on this. Inside practices generally refer to meditation practices where you get insight into the nature of your mind and the the nature of reality, if you want to be a little grandiose about things. And that is actually quite different from so – there's a difference between looking at the, the process by which your mind works. In other words, seeing how rapidly things come and go in your mind, seeing how you can get attached and caught up by passing emotions. It's that, that's looking at the process of uh, the way the mind works. Emotional work is looking at the substance of your emotions. And we deliberately, in insight practices, in mindfulness practices, try not to get overly analytical about the substance of our, you know, our, the stories of our life, the stories we're telling ourselves, et cetera, et cetera, because we're really trying to create a healthy non-attachment to that stuff so that we can see it come and go. But of course, our lives, our psychological lives are real and are really important on some important levels. And so we do need to also work with that, the, the, our childhood, whatever may have happened to, our, uh, to us in our childhood, what is the nature of our relationships right now. And so that would be emotional work by which I believe Daniel was referring to things like the kind of coaching I do with Jerry or just straight up psychotherapy. Uh, which I also highly recommend to anybody who believes uh, they could find value in it. And so, again, uh, insight practices would be like the straight-up mindfulness meditation that we talk about a lot on the show. Emotional work would be probably, I think, the most common example of that would be psychotherapy. Spiritual bypass is when we use our spiritual practice to avoid feeling into the difficult aspects of our experience. So one example, and this comes from Ray Hausman, who's the uh, the head of our coaching department at 10% Happier. One example of this would be using loving-kindness practice or metta practice, which we've talked about a lot on this show, 
as some sort of defensive strategy in order not to feel the discomfort of your anger or distress. So the, this is a, a, a really important concept, the idea that we can use meditation as a way, uh, counterintuitively, as a way to kind of avoid dealing with the substance of our lives. So both of these are important tracks that should be worked on. I hope that clears things up. I'm really glad you asked, and uh, I hope this um, was of use. Uh, let's go to voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. This is Yarden calling you from Brooklyn. So I work from home, and like a lot of people these days, I've gotten used to sort of judging my own value by how much I do. So when I work myself to the bone, I feel like I've accomplished something. But when I rest or take the day off, it's really hard not to feel guilty. And I've been doing my best recently to be nicer to myself, so taking breaks when I need to, slowing down, meditating, taking care of myself. But the problem is I'm so used to rewarding myself for hard work, so... On a day that I'm tired or anxious or not feeling well, and I make the conscious choice not to work so hard, I'm not sure how to treat myself. Like, have I done enough today to justify this cookie or this nap or lying down on the sofa and reading a book? So my question is, how would you go about changing that mindset and giving yourself little treats without having, quote unquote, earned them? Thanks so much for everything you do. Lots of love. Bye. All right. So I... (laughs) I really relate to this question. I d- agreed to, you know, they sent me the questions beforehand. Um, and my, our, the Samuel Johns, who does the, the work of fielding the voicemails, he sends me the voicemails in advance. And I agreed to take this question, not because I think I have some silver bullet answer for you, but because I just, <laughs> this is something that I see in my own life uh, on the regular. Um There's a great term for this. I heard it. Uh, this is podcast I like um, and the host... I hope to have on this show at some point. Uh, the podcast is called Hurry Slowly, and the host is named Jocelyn K. Gly, G-L-E-I, Jocelyn K. Gly. Anyway, she had an episode recently about something, I believe she called, called it productivity shame, that we, that many of us, and well, I certainly feel this way, beat ourselves up for not being productive enough. And her answer, one of her answers was, uh, that the the way way we get into this situation where we're feeling all the shame about our lack of productivity uh, or perceived lack of productivity is that we take on too much. It's like it starts right from the beginning. We think we can do or we should do more than we can or should be doing. And so it's looking at like what are your basic expectations for the amount of work you can or should be doing. This is – more art than science. And, you know, your specific question was how do you know uh, when you can, you know, give yourself a little treat without having quote unquote earned them. And this is, you know, I can't give you some silver bullet so you can figure out like, yeah, this is my night for um, a pint of ice cream. I don't know exactly how you get to that. But I think it's really about using mindfulness as a way to see, you know, what what is when have you worked too much and when do you need a break? And also noticing your – the how in, really uh, nasty your inner narrator can be and hopefully using mindfulness, self-awareness to see, oh, yeah, I'm in a spiral here of productivity shame. I can change the channel. Also, I, I, I invoked the name Ray Hausman. She is, as I said before, the um, – 
head of our coaching unit at uh, the 10% Happier app where we have all these amazing coaches uh, who can answer your questions pretty much on demand through the app. Um, this is what she uh, – this is how she replied to the question um, and I'm quoting here. This is a fairly common experience, she said. It can, be, it can be helpful to simply sit with the awkwardness of not knowing how to be when we're not engaged in agenda-oriented activities. So that's just kind of like a better version of what I was saying, which is, you know, use mindfulness. If you're in one of those moments of thinking, oh, man, should I be doing more? Can I take a break? Did I get enough? What's my point? What's my use on the planet? It might be worth it to actually use that as a cue to sit and meditate for a minute and think and and just be with this not knowing. I I regret, Yarden, that I'm not going to be able to give you, again, some sort of really easy formula for figuring this out. And it's, I suspect, maybe just annoying to hear that the answer to everything is meditation. But in this case, I, I believe actually a little bit of meditation in those moments when you're having this struggle can be useful. One other little thing I'd say is since there's a certain sort of – and and I may be reading this into what you're saying. Maybe I'm projecting based on what's happening in my own mind around productivity shame. But there's a kind of nastiness in my own inner weather when uh, I'm worrying about this stuff. And the aforementioned loving kindness practices where you repeat these phrases, uh, may you be happy, may you be healthy. If you can do a version of that for yourself in these moments, if you can deal with the um, sappiness that some people myself included, perceive in this practice. If you can get over that, there's a lot to suggest that uh, that, that can make a difference. So I've thrown a lot at you. Hopefully it was helpful. Uh, again, I really appreciate the question. Now I'm at the, uh, at the point in the show where I, I say a lot of thank yous. Uh, so I want to thank you, our listeners. I met somebody the other night, I want to say, a woman named Liz, who is part of our podcast Insiders Group. It was really cool to meet Liz, and uh, that reminds me, I just want to thank all the folks who every Friday, take time out of their own lives to give feedback on the show. It makes a huge difference. I see it personally, and it informs how we change as we move along here. I also want to thank the folks who put together the show, Samuel Johns, Ryan Kessler, Grace Livingston. Jonah Haskell's on the board tonight. Thank you, Jonah. Appreciate that. Thank you, of course, for listening, and we'll be back next Wednesday with another show. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember 
remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.